folks, this is Mark Steiner right here on the Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. So we've talked about this a lot in the, in the past weeks, but it is an issue that is burning here in Baltimore very deeply. And it's the issue of the depth of murders and violent crimes affecting our city. 14 people were shot over the weekend. Uh, one person was killed over the weekend. Uh, we have the controversial end to um, programs that uh, in the city to to uh, to combat violence, mm-hmm. uh, and we did have some issues with David Kennedy's anti-violence program, but that was brought in. It was killed by O'Malley, uh, brought back in by Sheila Dixon, um, played with a little bit by Stephen Rawlings Blake, uh, Operation Ceasefire, uh, and then ended by uh, our present mayor Catherine Pugh. Uh, the issues of um, the criminal justice office at the mayor's office not being um, functional at the moment. There are issues about h- how you put your hands, why, why it's so difficult to put hands on this. I, I read an article the other night where there was an interview with <coughs> the former chief of police of Dallas when they cut down crime. Uh, in Dallas, one of the things they did was put a police car on the corner of people's communities that helped cut down the violence and murder, but, that, but, but policing is the only way out of this as well. Right. So the question about what do you do? Um, if we were all, let, put yourself in this position, folks, and at 410-319-8888, tweet us at Mark Steiner, send an email to talkasteinershow.org. I really want to know what you all would do if you were mayor, mm-hmm. if you were leading the city, and, we, and you're facing this problem. What would be the things you would do immediately to protect this community mm-hmm. and long term <clears throat> to ensure that this doesn't keep happening in, a community, in our community? What do you do? 410-319-8888. I'm here with three guests. Uh, we have with us here in the studio Kim Schuhart, longtime uh, citizen activist, former uh, candidate for city council president. Good to have you back in the house here, Great Kim. Great to be here. Lawrence Grand Prix is director of research at Leaders for a Beautiful Circle. Lawrence, good to have you back in the house. Always good to be here, Mark. And Carl Stokes, former city council person and founder and executive director. Is that your right? Yes. Of the Bannerker Blake Academy of Arts and Science at Middle School here in Baltimore. Uh, and I will, again, full disclosure, I am uh, on the board. Yes, you are. Of uh, that school. Yeah, great. Great and to have you. Great for me to be here. Thank you for inviting me. 410-319-8888 is the number. So what would you do? What do we do? I mean, Lawrence Grand Prix, let me let you start. I mean, you come from a family of, with law enforcement history, law enforcement history mm-hmm. right? Um, you come out of an organization that is fighting for black empowerment to resolve the questions of the city. So where do you start? A lot of the work that we do... Uh, I think envisions a different future for Baltimore, economically, socially, and politically. And so while I will try to answer your question about what do we do now, I want to just say that our framework, the word I'm using now, not, no pun intended, is nowism. That was a pervasive and consistent nowism that comes from the trauma of violence. And it's totally understandable as someone in my family who has experienced violence. But if the system we have is a manifestation of white supremacy, limited violent, structurally violent against people of color, then we can't continuously say, how do we engage the current system? How do we tweak the current system to address this problem? So I think that things that we're doing is, for example, the youth fund. We fought vociferously as our CEO, as the chair of the youth fund, to change the dynamics about how we think about youth services in the city. And we're hoping to have a youth fund that's more democratic in terms of how it gives out funding. And we believe that will lead to youth programming that is genuinely more effective at uh, producing positive outcomes, including violence prevention. I think we promote different forms of economic development, particularly forms of uh, entrepreneurship that might really be attractive to individuals who are entrepreneurs only in the street economy. Viewing those individuals in the street economy as a resource to be developed and to give them incentive to come into the mainstream economy can be a real solid thing, I think, in the short to intermediate term. But you have to invest in them. You have to give them an incentive to make that transition. And finally, and, you know, I have a lot more to say, (laughs) but I think one thing is uh, witness protection. There are a lot of people in these communities who don't, of course, like the violence at all, but they truly feel more afraid of the people committing the violence than um, anything else. So I think that the fact that we have a witness protection system that is so doesn't include the community, 
doesn't come from a culturally competent framework and is largely underfunded and it's like a hotel room on Route 40, <laughs> I think it's a manifestation of white supremacy. It's like if someone is willing to step up and testify, you should value that person's life deeply. And you should construct systems that allow for, and you know, I don't believe that this is always the solution, but when someone is terrorizing the community and the community says enough, we need to get this person out of our community, we need to have a system that facilitates that short-term intermediate mechanism of justice, and I don't think we have that currently. Kim? Sure. <clears throat> then we'll go over to Carl Stokes. Mm -hmm. You know, I agree um, with everything Lawrence said. You know, one of the things that, that really frustrates us in the city is the distribution of wealth, right? The government is very willing to award grants and contracts to members of the nonprofit industrial complex, right? Um, and as an example, this Saturday, our mayor hosted a call to action. And that call to action wasn't about helping folks take the action that we all think and believe is necessary. <clears throat> she wants residents to step up. But yet she's not willing to fund any of the efforts of the residents to step up. Um, she wants us to volunteer to step up and do the job that the government can't and probably shouldn't do. But, but one of the things in, in Baltimore that we have to understand is those people who can be most impactful in the neighborhoods and the communities might not have the discretionary money or the time to commit to stepping up the way we want them to. A, a good example is the, the Youth Commission, um, which is appointed by the mayor, represents the 14 council districts, a young person. In previous years, that individual who served was being tasked to go to meetings in the evenings, to leave school and, <laughs> and show up right, to represent the youth of the community. They weren't compensated for that. These are young kids who quite often probably needed a job, right, but, but yet they had to buy their own dinner, they had to provide their own transportation. This current mayor has realized that she's got to invest in them. For, for several years, all the positions on the commission were not filled, right? This year, they're all filled. Hopefully, they will compensate these young people for volunteering to help and be part of the solution. But it has to go beyond that. You know, giving folks transportation <clears throat> subsidies, you know, we, we know that transportation sucks in this city. But if you want us to show up in the community to come to events, to come to meetings, to come to council hearings, maybe you've got to invest a little bit in our people. Carl, before we open the phones and push these questions a little harder, 410-319-8888, Carl Stokes. Yeah, just quickly, I don't want to really be a talking head on this and, and talk about more things that we're not going to do, but I've said, and many people have said for many years, that education is um, not only the long-term but the medium-term uh, solution to this. If you, We have a really poor public school system in Baltimore City, not a mediocre system, a poor system. It is very bad. 89% of all fourth graders, 89% are below grade proficiency in math and language arts. You have to give people a chance. Education, you have to, people have to be able to reason for themselves, think for themselves. Um, and that's not happening in this town and hasn't for a very long time. It's where we are now. You, you, you know, and then jobs, but there are plenty of jobs in the area, but people don't have the skill set uh, to take a job that will sustain them. They can take some very poorly paid position, but they really can't work at jobs that will sustain themselves, let alone an entire family. These are the issues. Now, the immediate things, the police took a knee, and they're still on their knees. Mm. They are still on their knees. Yep. And to pick up what Lawrence said, people are taking matters in their own hand, even on the street. You know, a guy who gets shot at, a guy who gets beat up, ordinarily would walk into a police station and say, this guy beat me up. This guy shot at me. But you do that now and there's no response. The police do not involve themselves in that sort of follow-up preventive sort of thing. And so following up again with Lawrence say, people feel like, too many people feel like, 
if I'm going to live on the street and in fear, I'm going to shoot them before they shoot me. And then folks are punks, and they're not coming at people straight up. They're going after their brothers or their mothers or their kids. Um, and so the immediate is that policing is not policing. The police department has no real structure, not to repeat the fact that too much money is going into the police department. You don't have to make a deal. And the city council threatened. They did a very good job, by the way. The council, I'm really proud of this uh, group of folk who are down there now. But they threatened to take away some money. But they never, at the end, they didn't. At the end, they really didn't take any money from the police budget. And yet, you ought to think of public safety, not just police or education, but public safety and, and making sure that young people have uh, after-school programming, academically, cultural enrichment, sports, jobs, would do more to bring down that violence and uh, uh, huge crime in our community uh, than the police will ever, ever do. Yeah, let me open the phones here. And I think I mean, one of the reasons that the city council folks who didn't didn't vote to take money away from the police budget, I think, is because there is no alternative plan in place other than police, and people were terrified of a public reaction when their neighborhoods are under threat to take away money from the police. I think that, or the that, GBC told them not to. They, I, I think it's not that simple. I think that's part of it, but we simplify things too much. I think it's not that simple as it's just GBC. I think they're part of it because they hold they they hold too much influence over political political power in the city. But it's not just that. People in communities are terrified. They and are, I think, and, and there's, <clears throat> without an alternative plan, without people saying this is what we can do, that's different, other than just policing. Political action, political action is hard to come by. Political courage is hard to come by beyond the that. will, right? The will. the will to do the right thing. The will you can you can point at us every day and say you need to become more involved, right? Give us the tools. Give us the capacity to become more involved and engaged. You know, Carl talked about what happens when you're a victim of crime in this city. You know, the police will come. They'll come and then they'll look at you and say, well, what did you do? You know, you obviously are involved in whatever this crime is, right? Not that, that they are sympathetic to us, that, that some of us are victims. We are all not perpetrators, but our police department doesn't see it that way. Right. They victimize you once they show up. Right. And so until we have a police department that understands its role to protect all citizens. Right. You're right. You can't keep pouring money into this bad apple. Right. It's mm -hmm. a bunch of bad apples. And and we don't see any alternative. You're absolutely right. And there is, but we just Mar haven't developed it. Right. I, I don't, I don't Mar think it's just I, I'm sorry. You go Ray, briefly. It's not just that we haven't developed it. It's that. There's a cultural and psychological reason why cops are seen as a potential solution. If you, you know, Justin Fenton posted a meme, and it's interesting. If you just look historically at the amount of money we spent on policing, it goes up and up and up and up and up. There's no correlation between the amount of money we spend on policing and decreases in murders. Right. right? 10, 20 years, and this is data consistent with things you've seen in other parts of the country. So why? Why is policing the foundation of our crown prevention strategies? I think it's a security blanket, a psychological security yep. blanket, an investment in the psychic stabilization of not just white, but largely a white populace in terms of this is the one thing I think emotionally makes me feel good. So if you cut it, it's an emotional response, not an actual response to what people tangibly fear is going to happen because no correlation <laughs> between spending and decreased murders. And the problem, last thing I'll say, is that the issue is that there are people in our community doing youth services, doing community mediation, who can have a real impact on the murder rate. But can the community, the political community, genuinely see those people as people worth investing in? Because when you shift money to those people who exist now, who've been doing work now, but just can't get the capacity to really make a huge dent in the murder rate, people continue to freak out because they don't see those individuals who are largely black and brown as actual entities that can operate in their interests. And so we have to that's talk right. about that. I think that's very true. What are we going to say? What call them when we open the phone? I was going to say exactly what Mark <laughs> <laughs> said. <laughs> Absolutely. He's, he's right. You know, we're afraid to touch the word 
white influence power structure supremacy because we become the guys to be hollowed, the girls to be hollowed when we say those words. Ryan Dorsey, a white guy, said the words, and he's been vilified for having said it. But it's absolutely the truth that the structure in Baltimore disallows for leaders of a beautiful structure. There is a plan for solving these issues. There is a plan. There are plenty of people who, are pu- who for no money, do after-school programs, who, who mentor to youth, who to take kids out for horse rides, who do so much, and yet they are not funded or thought of. As, and yet a non-person of color who does some little program of taking kids for a ride somewhere, or feed it, celebrate it, get a front page story, and plenty of money from the funders who do not believe in black and brown people except to put up on their screen at their annual meeting and say, we did this little project for these black and brown people. But they're not populated by black or brown people. The people who run and make the decisions on giving that money are not the people who are most vulnerable. Not on the board. We don't get invited to be on the boards of any of those organizations. So when they establish their annual objectives, it's about what they can do to us, not what they're going to do with us and for us. Let me open the phones here. I'll start off by reading these tweets that have come in. I think this is responsive to what what you said, Carl, earlier. Uh, Anna Quincia Agbu wrote in, um, will the Baltimore City Public Schools ever use culturally centered pedagogy to teach our mostly African-American student population the status quo isn't working, and then retweet and tweeted in, will the Governor and General Assembly implement the Kerwin Commission recommendations during the 2018 session in, the, in that election year? We can talk about that. I, that so. That's going to be a huge question mm-hmm. um, that we need to tackle. Um, let me open the phones here, 410-319-8888, and Jim, you're on the air, line one. Yeah, so it's a pleasure just to be picking up the phone to have me say these couple words. I think you're the most talented person on the air that does this kind of thing. Thank you. But I also think that when you, you're there and the people that you're talking are there, you're talking about it and you don't simplify it, but it's not a solution all the time. We have a system here that if the mayor does not, it's a civil civilian government, so she's supposed to be in charge of the police department. Why doesn't she have a board in her office with somebody with the rank of uh, deputy mayor, I mean deputy police chief, that discusses this every day and every morning she comes in. There's no investigation. You know, you got to go find the police chief to have a meeting. It should be a meeting every morning when she comes in to look at the board. And it's not like she wanted and they're not addressing the thing that she asked them to. That's when you have to meet automatic. You hit a button and have to meet. They do not, and I walked in there with smoke, they, and he was a burnt intelligent man. They have no control over the department that's supposed to have where they have the most problem. Um, that's interesting. Thoughts? You've been there? No, I, I think that's a great idea. I mean, we focus on, 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 on not only what's important, but what we really care about. And so uh, this issue is should be the most dominating issue in Baltimore. Now, it's not the only issue I believe so strong in education. I think that that's the greatest uh, way to go. But I think he's right. I think he's right that every day we ought to come in and the leaders who are the leaders should come in every day and say, where are we now in solving this problem? I think that every murder should be on the front page of the Baltimore Sun and not on page six and two paragraphs. You know, Boston. We can talk about ceasefire in Boston. I'll just give you two quick examples. I can't, damn it, I can't think of the, the, the woman who was there about 20 years ago, African-American woman, who forced the Boston newspapers to put every murder on the front page and to say, this is important. And this is the life of this person who died. And he had a mother, he had a father, he had dreams, and they talked about each murder. And, you know, Boston at one time went down to like 10 murders in the whole city. I don't know where they are today. And the second thing Boston did in terms of the CSAR and, 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 and another program where they involved the ministers of the city. And they decided the youth who were most at risk. 
and they follow those, now they meaning the ministers in each neighborhood, follow those youth most at risk every day, every night, and at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, whatever time it was, they knocked on people's doors and said, is Carl here? And if he's not here, mother and dad, where is he? And come out here with me, and we're going to go find your son, and we're going to make sure he's in the house. And again, they reduced youth murders to zero for a couple of years and are still very low because they are proactive in what they're doing. So how does a city, um, I mean, I mean, I, I, there's two parts here. There's, there's shifting an overall approach to our communities. Mm-hmm. That's not just about policing, and that takes time and to shift, and we need to shift it. And then also is the media issue of people's lives mm-hmm. in the communities. So some papers can do a front-page story that say this is how these murders are connected. Right. <laughs> and we can't make those connections figure out what to do to stop them. Immediately, I mean that—that that seems to me that—that's a problem. I mean, it, the, you can't allow this so, kind of fear to take place no, right. in people's lives every day. Yeah, can I p- touch so, on that briefly? Of, go ahead. What's that? Um, so ceasefire. Two things. First, I think it's important that we not compare apples to oranges. Baltimore is different than Boston it is. in terms of social economics. <laughs> you know, Boston has certain economic ups, uh, factors, anchor institutions, and development projects that change the economics. I mean, some people say the shooters get gentrified out of some of these cities, and that explains some of the mm-hmm. decreases in murder. Also, demographically, some people just age out of crime. So some of the decreases in violence we're seeing is people just aging out of crime. So it's complex, but the one thing I want to focus on is when we say culture. I don't know. Ceasefire is a blanket term. There are lots of different programs that have used this name ceasefire. So my question is, what is Baltimore ceasefire, right? Because my, what I hear about ceasefire is questionable to me in terms of them using a carrot and stick approach where the what carrot is, here are these programs, here's some job training, blah, blah, blah. And the stick is, we're going to put all the people we think are gang members in the room and say, we know you're gang members. If you shoot anyone, we're going to throw you under the jail. If you know anything about young black men, <laughs> you know, that may not be the best way to get them to do what you want because of the nature of their experience in America produces a higher prevalence of oppositional defiant relationships to power. So ceasefire, the way I've seen it, does not seem very culturally competent. Now, I'm sure black people within ceasefire oftentimes can make that program work against that, against that cultural framework or force it to do what they want it to do. But my question is that this should be at the center when we talk about ceasefire is what are they actually doing? <clears throat> Who's getting the money? What type of ceasefire are we talking about here? And what is the cultural framework of what they're doing? Because my inference is that has a huge impact on its success rates from city to city. The problem is we don't study that because that's not seen as what we should put at the center of our analysis. And I think that's a problem. Very, right, qu- very quickly. I know you got to go to the phones. Break, no, we got to take a break. break. Okay. And we'll come right back and let Carl have a say. Then go, we will go right to the phones and James and Tyrone, Hank, the next three callers up, 410-319-8888. Stay with us. We'll be right back. <laughs> Folks, this is Mark Steiner with our local roundtable here as we look at uh, the murder and violence rate in our town and wrestling with where we go and why we can't seem to put our hands around this. Before we went to break, you heard Lawrence Grand Prix, Director of Research and Leaders of A Beautiful Struggle. Come True Heart is here, longtime citizen activist, former candidate for Baltimore City Council President. Uh, Carl Stokes, former city councilman, founder of Banneker Blake Academy of Arts and Science, a charter middle school in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you all are 410-319-8888. So go to you, Carl, and we'll go right to the phones come back to the, the panel. I, I just want to say that uh, several years ago when I was trying to cut taxes in Baltimore City, and I used Boston and San Francisco's examples, people said, this ain't Boston, this ain't San Francisco. Well, it ain't now, but at the time that they decided to make serious changes on crime, taxes, and other things, Baltimore's numbers were much better than Boston, much better than San Francisco. We were better. I wonder what makes us such an outlier for 30 years that we have the highest murder rate in America, always in the top five, uh, and now we're miles ahead of the rest of the country. And we're in the top 20 worldwide in terms of homicide rates. Why is Baltimore such an outlier? Why don't we take what works, model it for Baltimore, or don't model it for Baltimore, just do what everybody else does very successfully and have the commitment, the passion, the will to stick with it? 
um, and I really don't buy uh, uh, mildly, not to argue, uh, that others are so different from us. We seem to be the outlier here around the country. We seem to be the outlier. Yeah, so, we got, we've got to look at, at the, the fact that policing our way out of this mess is not the answer. And so if we don't have a multidiscipline approach mm-hmm. to this, you know, education is one. Um, you know, empowering communities is another. Um, using the resources that we have and building their capacity to engage. And, you know, the fact that our um, elected officials don't have um, much faith that the community can really do the work that needs to be done is a big problem. You know, this thing on the weekend, I, I was torn as to whether I would show up at the mayor's call to action. I did not show up because I didn't see strategically that she was willing to help us build capacity, right? It was a lot of talk. It was a lot of rhetoric. But I saw no plan to engage us in in a real meaningful way, and that's with dollars, right? You just can't talk about it. You got to show that you want to help us build the capacity to do this work. Can't pay outsiders to do it. Pay us to do right. it. Let me open the phone here. 410-319-8888. James, you're on the air. Welcome. Good morning, Mark and Kim. This is James Williams, Education Advocate. I meet with you a lot at the board meetings. And Carl. Hey, James. Yeah, um, I had five people shot in my block in the last five years, and four of them died. Mm. Okay. And um, I visited the Northwest Police District and talked to the district commander about drug activity, and the, uh, the mayor and police say that communities uninvolved, but um, if a person visits the police district three times and calls the chief of patrol and says, we have inc- increased drug activity, can we get a squad car or foot patrol in, in our block? And they don't do it. And then two weeks later, two people get shot and one of them die. Okay. How, how far does a person go to, to be a part of the community and visit the district and call chief of patrol and text the district command and say we got intensified drug activity, something's going to be happening, so, and we don't get no help. So, James, James, let me ask you this quick question, and then I'll let the panel jump in here. The quick question is, so what, so, so what would you do that's, what would you have them do that's different? No, and I don't mean just say answer your call and come to the neighborhood. What would you have them do that's different? First off, you have to position the people who are working for you and strategically where you know there's going to be a probability of activity being uh, something negative happening. Somebody got shot in a Chinese food joint. Now they have a police car near there, but they're not there every day. They have to be strategically placed and not sitting in an empty parking lot in the van. They can utilize their manpower a lot better than they're doing, and they don't take direction from community members who know what's happening in their community. Who visit the police, who do community meetings at the police station, who talk to the district commander and the police officers, and they don't do anything about it. They just collect a paycheck. That's what is frustrating to us. Right. Okay. They don't value us. They and, don't appreciate that we can help and be part of the solution. And, and unfortunately, we have a lot of folks in the police department who don't care about us, don't live here. Um, you know, we have this statistic that said that, you know, only 22% of them actually lived here, right, um, of the police department. What does that mean? How do you translate that, you know, into day-to-day activity engagement with the residents of Baltimore? And, and unfortunately, it's an abusive relationship. So, so, so all right, but let's, let's take something, two things here, and then we'll go back to the phones. So, um, A... It's, you cannot legally tell a city employee where to live. You can't. Mm-hmm. You, you cannot. You can tell fire and safety where to live. You cannot. No, no, you, you, legally, you uh, cannot do that. You cannot you, tell. It, a, it would take a state movement. Again, an outlier right. as a city. So Boston, I, you have to. Chicago, you have to. Right, D.C., so. you have to. Los Angeles, you have to. The state can do 
that. No, it ha- I understand. You're saying presently. You cannot, I got it. You cannot. You can, you can't do it presently. I mean, you just yeah. can't do it. I mean, you could try to get the state to pass a law, which I'm not saying you shouldn't get the state to pass a law. I got it. I'm saying, but you can't presently I got force it. anybody to do that. But a b. Um, so I was thinking about Greg Cilio, who was also uh, in the paper, who was beaten up mm, uh, yeah, and robbed. Yeah, Friday. Who, who these non-violent anti-violence programs comes up, come under him. His response was interesting. His response was, if they catch these kids, don't put them in jail. Right. We need to. And so, and I was thinking about that in terms of what Avon Bellamy and I were talking about the other day at lunch, mm-hmm. who's an old friend of mine, who is worked in these. We met him because he's he worked in a lot of these programs back in mm-hmm. the '70s and '80s with young people. He was a he was one of the toughest guys in the corner off the avenue back in his days. Those of us a certain age know. Right. Um, and he says, you know, like back then I was a knucklehead and somebody needed to put their arms around me to pull me out to save me before I got killed or killed somebody. Right. And that's, so we need to get there. So, you know, so the police do have a job. I mean, their job, I, you cannot let men and women with guns control the streets and neighborhoods. No. You just can't allow that to happen, A. Yeah. But B, in a larger sense, that's be a different strategy of how you deal with young people who do get in trouble, who do get in trouble, to kind of bring them back to the community and not make them right. uh, part of a statistic inside our prison system. Absolutely. But ha- that is what has to be fought for, it seems yeah. to me, both um, those things. It's funny how they send a squad car where there's already been uh, something happening. So it's kind of like you send your lightning prevention force to the mm-hmm. place where lightning is already struck, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't make any sense, but it does make sense PR-wise because if, if they don't do it and something happens right there, people say, what do you mean? So we have this constant reactivism where people are trying to cover their butts politically, but they don't see their job as prevention. And maybe their job isn't prevention, but let's have an entity that actually does prevention. And the last thing I'll say on this is that I get a little frustrated because it's not like young black men are like actually wild animals. <laughs> and that's my issue with the safe streets mentality, which is we need to use this Pavlovian uh, hmm. carrot and stick approach to them. It's if they're wild animals that can only be gotten through to through this stimulus response framework. There are people who have been doing psychological studies on young black men for 30, 40, 50 years. And they've talked extensively about the psychological dynamics of emasculation and the desire to feel a certain sense of affirmation that can lead to violent outbursts. So this isn't rocket science. This is psychology. And we have people who operationalize violent prevention frameworks through this culturally specific psychology and have developed positive interventions that create a sense of uh, affirming one's humanity specifically for black men and specifically within the context of the historical trauma that black men have faced. Why is it so hard <laughs> for us to see the importance of investing in that as a genuine prevention strategy? Well, I think so. And you, I, just, you, I wonder, like, white liberals say that I'm looking for objective things that can objectively address well, the problem, take, take, but take, yet we don't talk about it. But them. take the word objective out of it. Let's say take safe streets. You've got people in safe streets who are doing this work, and people have some critique of safe streets, mm-hmm. but you've got people like Imhotep and others in safe streets, I'll just call name out, who are there? That's exactly what they do. That's what he does in Park Heights every day. Right. He understands it from the inside. He understands Andavine. He understands the psychology of being a black man, what it means to be a black man in America, especially a poor black man in America. He gets it, and the men around him get it, and the women around him get it. So, so we're threatening to take away that funding mm-hmm. from those men who hmm. understand right. what to do sure. and how to do it. You know, I mean, Heru's not part of it, but they're all part of this circle. They, they understand mm-hmm. this. That, that they should be they should be unleashed, right? Allowed okay. to do their work. Lawrence mm-hmm. touched on a great point, and and throughout this year's budget process, I have been yelling um, that we need a budget line for crime prevention. Our priorities, right, are such that we put money into those priorities. But yet, if we really truly believe that crime prevention is important in this city. Where are we investing in crime prevention strategies? And the police budget, they will tell you the entirety of it is crime prevention, but I I say SWAT and tactical units are not crime prevention. Um, so, So until we can delineate the quantity of the investment, into crime prevention, then it's all lip service. Mm-hmm. And, and, and your point is so valid. You know, you know where are we actually helping our young people d- 
divert their attention, their minds, their activities away from crime. Because right now, the crime in this city is 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 a money maker. And I think, it is a huge money. And maker. I think crime prevention is thirteenth. We all as 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 as, as, as life affirmation. I mean, if you put your arms around young people who commit certain crimes in the city, people can be made whole. They, yes, can. they can. But not you just know. playing their arm around them, giving them a I, vision a of how to manifest themselves in the world where right. they can actually feel affirmed. Yeah. Right. And that's more right. difficult than just, you know, right. arms no, but around them. When I say arms around them, I mean you have to create programs that treat young people Absolutely. as mm-hmm. human beings right. mm-hmm. who have gone through what they've gone through. Right. And help them find who they are, so they right. can move. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and I'm they not being be led by the police. Right. Yeah. yeah, but right. you have to right. also <laughs> create the values and the mores of the community. You cannot just, as a school administrator, just say, "I love you so much." Oh no, right. And there are no right. consequences right. for what you do. Right, right. You cannot do that. Mm-mm. We cannot do that. You cannot allow young people right. to curse out adults, curse out teachers, curse out people, and say, "You'll get better." Right, there has to be consequences. It's not jail. It's not beating. It's not. But there must be a discipline. There must be an enculturation of values and mores of this community. So this let me is do, not who we are. Uh, I promise to get back to the phones I'm here. Sorry, yes. Folks, wait, no, no, we only have like ten minutes left. I want to make sure okay. we get some phones calls in here. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Let's go to Tyrone. You're on the air. Hey, how y'all doing? Good hey, morning. Tyrone. Um, you know, I heard it once said that if you want to destroy a people. Don't educate their children. Right. And as a result of not educating our children, this probably would explain why there's so much crime and violence in our streets. That's the only explanation. And and I would even I would even argue conspiracy about this. You know what I mean? Now I know Mark have a problem with the word conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> it's no all right. Brother. It's okay, Tyrone. It's no all right. So go ahead. Go ahead. Believe it, it would be. You know what I mean? Uh, let, me, let me make a point. Sure. If I was a drug dealer, and I had a, a friend, uh, a partner, and he was way on the other side of town doing a drug deal, and he got busted, and three days later, they came and locked me up for it, then I could make the argument, why are you locking me up? I wasn't there. You know what I mean? Then they, they would say conspiracy. Now, you would believe in that kind of conspiracy, Bill. But when it comes to 350 years of slavery, after slavery, Willie Lynch, Jim Crow, segregation, civil rights, now dealing with racism and white supremacy, and the wrong that's been perpetrated against our people from generation to generation to generation, and this wrong been passed down from your children to your children's children to your children's children's children. Uh, excuse me, you know exactly what you're doing to us. You know what I mean? And, and, and that word, conspiracy, been around, around even long before you was born, Mark. That's you know what for mean? sure. And the definition that follows that, you know what I mean? And so why you wouldn't see that as a conspiracy, you know what I mean, a system and, 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 and people who know exactly what they're doing to us, I have a problem with understanding that, Mark. Tyrone, I, I, I will yield on this point. <laughs> and I think American history shows very clearly what we're doing in this country to black folks and to brown and black people in America. No doubt. No doubt. And there's, there's no question about it. And also, and I think one of the things, important things, on the way back to the phones here, that Lawrence was saying earlier, that, that we understand what mass psychology does. We understand the psychology of oppression and what it does to people. Franz Fanon was writing about that stuff in the 1960s. There's nothing, this is, this is, and we have, and, and in order to heal, mm-hmm. you have to accept that and let the people do the work that need to do the work in the place they need to do the work. Right. Conspiracy, Tyrone, um, the miseducation of the Negro. Old book. That's two centuries, of, almost two centuries ago. <laughs> Listen to them. The miseducation of the Negro is still, the only difference is that the author was talking about the whites miseducating the Negro. I dare say it's the African Americans who are miseducating them. Let me get two more quick calls in your head and close this out before we have to hear the uh, the pre-recorded segment we have at the end of the program. Come back to our guest at 410-319-8888. Donna, you're on the air. How are you doing? Good morning, Donna. Excellent show with your guest. Thank you. Um, time and time again, I, I bring up the same topic. You have moms, multiple moms with children. They have children mm-hmm. in poverty. 
when you bring children into poverty, when children are born into poverty, they already suffer from post-traumatic disorder. They're stressed out. Mom's stressed out. They're stressed out. There's no hope. Then you have the white males who bring guns in the community. You got stressed out mom. You got stressed out children. Who the, who's going to most likely start acting out the stresses of living in the poverty? The children and the teenagers. We have two issues. We have poverty. We have mothers in poverty. We have children in poverty. And then we have a system that brings violence for black people to commit genocide against each other. How are we going to solve that? We have to stop. On many areas, we have to deal with the poverty, the stresses, the post-traumatic disorder that mothers and children are born into before we resolve any of this. And that's called prevention. And I wanted you guys to elaborate. Thank you. Thank you. Let me get one more quick call in here. Let the panel close out with their ideas and what they've just heard. 410-319-8888. Let's go to Hank. You're on the air. How are you doing today, Mr. Stein? All right, I'm Hank, trying to make some short tweets. Yes, because we don't have a little bit of time. Confirmation and affirmation, right? You see these little guys standing out on corners with speeches and stuff? Confirm that they're going in the right direction. Give them affirmation that they can go better in a better direction, right? We keep hollering about they not helping us, they not helping us. We are not helping us, right? If you see a young man out there willing to get out there and do something, then show him. The next thing to do, okay, you working. Now let me show you how to, instead of taking your whole $20 to buy a cheap, make bubble gum for soda, let me show you how to take $5 of that and put to the side so you'll have $10 or $25 by the end of the week. Let me once show you how to speak etiquette and proper language and proper diction so when you go in front of a job, you can speak properly. You can say what you want to say in the hood, but when you go for a job, you have proper etiquette and diction. My mother always stayed for me about that. Speak your vernacular, speak time. Right? So if we confirm to get you in the right right direction, and we confirm to get we're gonna walk with you, right? If we show them that we're willing to put, pick up a book and show you what to read and not just let you read, then we can build our own children. We worry about everybody else doing it. No, I'm worried about what the right people my children. I'm worried about me being on my children. My grandson got baptized yesterday. It made me cry, right? My faith and religion is shook, but my grandson got baptized yesterday, so he has a strong belief. Mm-hmm. He's been taught. And that's what I'm saying. Okay, so let, he's, hey. he's been confirmed and confirmed. Hey, we're almost out of time here, but I appreciate the, I really appreciate your thoughts. Let's go around the room with our final thoughts and reflect them on our last two callers said in your final thoughts, if you would. Uh, we'll start here with Kim Chuhart, go around the, the Launch Grand Prix and okay. go to Carl Stokes. Okay. You know, we really have to take this um, work and vest um, in the folks who are closest to the problems, who understand the situations. Um, we've we've been too dependent on outsiders to come in and save us, and they failed. Uh, right now, we've got to step up. Yes, the mayor is right. Call to action. But when we step up, it's got to be in a meaningful way. It's got to be strategic. Um, you know, we talk about data-driven outcomes. We don't use those things here in this city. You know, we keep pouring more and more. We're going to spend $497 million on the police next year, right? We're approaching half a billion dollars in the police annually. That's outrageous, really outrageous. When our children need education, they need love, they need caring after-school programs, they need folks in the community to help them. Crime prevention is what we need to be about. Lawrence yeah. Grand Prix. Appreciate everything that's been said here today. If you look at some of the budget documents, there are two bar graphs side by side, almost as if the city's trying to say, hey, we actually spend money on the youth. And it's kind of reminds me of that theme from Inconvenient Truth, if you've seen the documentary, where it's like gold bars on one side and the entire planet on the other side. <laughs> and they're trying to balance them. So you have a limited, responsive, after-the-fact downstream force that is not trusted by community, and on the other side, you have the future of the entire city. (laughs) Why are you viewing those things as equal? That itself is problematic. And to kind of piggyback off that, lastly, I'll say is that the scale 
of the of the enormity of the trauma and the violence that people have faced, structural violence in terms of black folks is so big that I worry sometimes when we say, well, you just got to do it. You just got to do it. I can't go to someone in the hood and just talk to them and say, you got to get your life together. They're going to say, who are you? Right. So we have to realize this is an enormity of the problem and not look to individuals to somehow deal with this massive structural violence, but to see that we have to invest collectively in new institutions that can give people an actual vision of how to live their lives in a way that they can have hopes that they don't have to turn to a life of crime or violence. Black political leadership has to take the head on this. Black political leadership has to gather all of its courage, all of its courage, and do what's right by black people in this town. The folk who are most vulnerable. We, black political leadership, does not answer to the black community in this town, does not at all. And if they would just do that, they could turn this all around. Again, I, I just, education, uh, why are we the outlier? No other jurisdiction in the state would give so much money to a police department, wouldn't do it. Almost every other jurisdiction gives twice as much or more to education and to children than it does to its police. And the results are obvious. And the results are obvious in Baltimore when we don't. Again, I, I didn't want to be no. sounding uh, like a I talking mean, head. It, it, it just, it, you know, to me, and part of it has to do with how we develop our city and where the money, because Lawrence, you talk about long term, right? Mm -hmm. And I say this over and over again, I'll say it again. Yeah. And I'll say it as much as I need to say it on the air here. Amen. That when you make a deal like Port Covington, mm -hmm. and that deal did not ensure whatever the number is, X, a thousand jobs, whatever the number is, right. to black men and women in right. inner city poor neighborhoods right. would get skill sets and employment if it didn't ensure housing That's right. for low income and moderate income people inside that inside the bounds, if it didn't ensure the development of black businesses inside of Port Covington, then the deal shouldn't have been cut. <laughs> it's that simple. You, you, if, 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 if any public money is used for anything like that, right. it has to benefit the public. Yeah. Or it <laughs> should not be done. That's right. right. Yeah. It's a bad deal. It's just not right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. No. Yeah. You know, we have this thing we call a structural deficit, you mm. know. And, um, you know, the structure is is definitely at, at the core of this thing. And we have structural racism. We have structural disinvestment. And until the structure is reoriented... Right. Mm -hmm. Until the structures in this system are reoriented to take care of the people and not the corporations that that, you know, boast it. Um, we're going to have these inequities and these equity inequities in our city, as Carl stated, are perpetuated by these folks who we think look like us and, and talk like us and were raised like us, um, but don't really represent us. And we've got to change that dynamic. And, and as he said earlier, this city council took a huge step in that direction in representing the people of Baltimore. They did. And I do thank my friend Jack Young for doing the, um, not only at this moment, but also the youth fund, which the mayor says, I want some of your youth fund mm -hmm. money. No. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. Well, we we, we, we took last, care of the that. The last place should be, should be, should be, it should be taken from. Right. Carl Stokes, fellow of Banneker Blake. Academy of Arts and Science, good to have you in the studio. Kim Chuhart, long-time citizen activist who's always keeping people's feet to the fire, good to have you in the studio, as always. Great to be here. Lawrence Grand Prix, Director of Research uh, for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, always good to see you as well in the studio. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me, Mark. And thank you all for calling in and writing in and texting in and making this show what it is. On our way to this next segment, let me tell you what that is. I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part, is produced by the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our assistant producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramalagan. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at SteinerShow.org. And to podcast the show, go to SteinerShow.org or use your favorite podcasting app. Uh, and I'm glad you tuned in today. We're going to close today uh, with something a little different. We're going to be doing every day a little bit something like this. Uh, I was just taken by my ice cube putting down Bill Maher on television in a very profound way. We're going to leave you with that thought uh, and wish you could see it. Just watch his face while it was going on. So I'm actually trying to take care. Enjoy this piece. Um, I just want to know two questions. What made you think that it was cool to say that? 
You know, I, I just... That's one question. I just explained. It, 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 there was no thought put into it. Obviously, I was telling Dr. Dyson, comedians, they react. And it was wrong, and I apologized. And, you know, the, I, more than that, I can't do. I accept your apology. But I still think we need to get to the root of the psyche because I think it's a lot of guys out there who cross the line because they a little too familiar or they think they too familiar or it's guys that you know they might have a black girlfriend or two that made them some Kool-Aid every now and then and they think they can cross the line and they can't you know it's a word that has been used against us it's like a knife man and you can use it as a weapon or you can use it as a tool. It's been used as a weapon against us by white people. And we're not gonna let that happen again by nobody because it's not cool. It, now, I know you heard, it's in, the, it's in the lexicon, everybody talking, but that's our word now. That's our word now. And you can't have it back. I know they're trying to get it back. It's guy, and I'm not talking about you, yeah, Bill. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not talking about you, Bill. Okay. But I'm talking about guys who cross the line every day because they got some black homies. They got some friends. They think it's cool. And it's not cool because when I hear my homies say it, it don't feel like venom. When I hear a white person say it, it feel like that knife stabbing me, even if they don't mean it. So, you know, I like your show, and it's a great show. And I just don't know sometimes, is this a political show, or is it a show about jokes? And sometimes, it's sometimes both. the jokes, I know I understand the, the format, and you know, you gotta say it's a comedian show, but this, to me, is a political show. And I think you just have to uh, not step on some of the political messages that you're saying with a joke because some things just ain't funny, you know what I mean? Some, this is real right here I, I, that we're going through. And I'm, I'm not trying to get on your case, Bill. I'm telling you, I like your show, I like you. But I think this is a teachable moment, not just to you, but to the people that's watching right now. You know what I'm saying? Dude, I'm not, I'm okay. not, I'm but not I, I think to, the people I, watching right now are, are saying that point has been made. Not by me. Okay. <laughs> But you, but you made it. I, mean, I made it. I made it. I mean, I'm done. I mean, and we can laugh now. We can tell jokes. Okay. <laughs>